Good morning. Welcome to Jays Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Blue Jays win. 6-3. They beat the Marlins. They take that series. Take two out of three. Winners of two in a row. The momentum cannot be stopped. It was a pretty fun one. Nice noon game that was wrapped by like 3 o'clock. Matt Chapman homer had a double. Kevin Biggio and George Springer had a couple hits each. Team went 5 for 10 with runners in scoring position, which almost never happens. Solid day from the bullpen. Trevor Richards back in leverage. Luis Arise sucks. He's only hitting 398 now. Only had eight hits in that series. A lot of fun stuff. We got a fun show today, too, despite the off day. Uh, we're going to have Mike Petriello of MLB.com on a little later. Uh, Samson Folk of Raptors Republic is going to come and talk some baseball, but also it's a tiny, tiny bit of it's the NBA draft tonight, and I don't get to talk much basketball anymore. So I, uh, yeah, sprinkle in a, a little bit there. We're also going to talk to Veer Mahan. So his real name is Rinku Singh. Um, he is a WWE wrestler, but if you've ever seen the Disney movie or heard of the kind of reality contest, the million dollar arm, that is Veer Mahan. He went from cricket to baseball and now to pro wrestling. Uh, so with cricket day at the ballpark this weekend, we'll talk to him a little bit about his story and that transition from cricket to baseball and where the sports have, uh, you know, some overlaps and some differences. We're going to do that tomorrow with Vivek Jacob as well. I'd imagine that conversation will also have a tiny bit of Raptors in it. Um, but right now, someone I'm not going to let talk about the Raptors, at least for a few minutes. It's Chris Black, producer at Sportsnet at Down to Black on Twitter. Chris, thanks for joining me. Anytime. How you doing? I'm Good doing well. Trip? Yeah, I'm doing well. Road trip was, well, the, I was a part of the first six games. Uh, part of the broadcast producing. Um, those six did not go swimmingly, uh, but we were we spoke either a week ago or maybe a week plus, and I said, I think you were, I think you wanted six and three. I was <laughs> like, yeah, six and three, uh, five and four, I'd be very happy with. They were three good teams they were playing. Four and five, they kept their head above water, so it, it went okay. Now, four and five, sure, in a vacuum is is fine on a nine-game road <laughs> trip against three good opponents. Um, the how... It went down, though, is, I mean, there's there's room for more frustration than the record might suggest. There's in always there. room for frustration. Yes, uh, especially, you know, dropping five of the first seven and having a couple, I mean, j- almost entirely a turn through the rotation of everyone struggling, as well as a bullpen day, the bats doing as the bats have done. Um, so, yes, four and five is a good way to come out of that road trip record-wise. Um, but how are you feeling at sort of a high level? Like, well, we'll get into the the micro details as we do, but at a high level where this baseball team is and the baseball they've played over the last month or so. I'm really encouraged by the bullpen. I think that little blip was like a little bit of running on fumes. Um, The two biggest questions that I keep coming back to and kind of guys you always kind of focus on are Vladdy and Manoa. Mm -hmm. I think they will kind of not necessarily define the season, but you know, a lot of the other stuff I mean, around the edges. No, I think you can say they'll define the second half because yeah. you're the guy who was supposed to be your ace and your opening day. Even if you believe Kevin Gosman is a better pitcher, he got the ball on opening day. Yeah. And the guy who was supposed to be the face of the franchise, like, I'm sure there are teams that survive it, but show like the, the Miami Marlins are 10 games over 500 with their Cy Young winner turning into Alec Manoa as well. Um, but show me the team where their presumed best pitcher and presumed best hitter are both having bad years and yeah, it's, I, I just, yeah, with Vladdy, it's, it's just interesting to see what, you know, can he become a hitter that's 40% better than league average? Or is this going to be, you know, is he going to be 20%, 25% for the rest of the year? 
And then is there a reset in the offseason? There's there's some weird numbers with him, um, but I think he's the biggest question on the hitting side. And Manoa is just, you know, we keep getting these updates, but, you know, there's no official games. There's no video. So from a stats, numbers, <laughs> video guy, um, it's very, it's all very abstract. These updates we're hearing from Hazel and Arden. Um, so for anyone who didn't hear those updates, yesterday Alec Manoa was doing another um uh, another simulated game. And so what that means is he, he had, you know, the first couple times he was down there, it was just him pitching in the lab and Hey, how are your pitches moving? How's the velocity? How are you feeling? And then he goes to uh, a five inning up down where it's like, okay, come out, throw your pitches, go sit down for a bit, come out through your pitches, but the batters aren't swinging. It's just a guy like me or you down <laughs> at the complex standing in there and hoping you don't get hit. Then he moved to a 75-pitch simulated game where I believe guys were allowed to swing and put the ball in play. Uh, So five innings, 75 pitches. And then yesterday, the one he did was supposed to increase the pitch count. We didn't get an official pitch count yet. Uh, I'd imagine there's an update on that tomorrow from John Schneider. First day of a homestand is usually a big, uh, hey, what's Zach Pop doing at AAA? Hey, all this other stuff. Um, So there would be one. And then if everything had gone well yesterday, the plan roughly seems to be to then get him in a complex league game. Where it gets really interesting, though, is that they've had him pitching basically on turn, stay in that kind of rotation shape. I know where this is going. One complex league game is almost certainly not enough, but the next bullpen day would line up to be on Manoa's day, on Canada Day. It's tidy, narratively, Feels early. It does feel early, right? Yeah, I, th- I post All Star break feels more reasonable. Yeah, I think I think all the the reasonableness on the baseball side would are eyeing an All Star break. But yeah, Canada Day that would be interesting, an interesting time to come back. Uh, but yeah, it feels like an All Star break. Now. Yeah. So um, for for anyone tracking, you know, the Alec Manoa side of things, it looks like his next um, day would be uh, Monday. Now, I don't think he can actually play in a complex league game Monday because I believe, like the rest of the minors, the complex leagues don't play on Monday. Um, So maybe he has to go Tuesday or or Sunday or something like that. Um, But anyway, he is inching closer, and as long as nothing went poorly yesterday, we're going to at least have stat lines to scout. The complex league does not allow us stat cast things and, in fact, very rarely even allows us fan or scout reports because nobody's at those games um so we'll be going in blind a little bit but we'll at least have a stat line this isn't what i intended to talk to you about but since we're on this topic alec manoa pitches monday or tuesday in a complex league game say all we can do is scout the stat line is there anything within that that you are looking at at all like do the walks even matter to you uh i just want to see his like if I could see a plot of his pitches, that's all I'd want to see. Okay. Is he commanding the zone? Is he getting the edges? Is he, or is he spraying? Like, Because he was spraying pitches. So really, if you just showed me a plot of where he put his pitches, I really don't care if he gave up a bunch of hits, if he didn't if swing and miss or not. It'd literally be just show me the plot of his pitches. If that's that window's tightening, I would consider that progress. All right. Um, so there will be, you know, potentially a couple starts. And, and what that would mean then is that – July 1st, and then once more before the All-Star break, uh, you would have bullpen days. Kind of, 
it's a little amusing to me that like Canada Day, when we do get a game here, feels like a big game all the time, right? And it's the Red Sox here, and then it's a bullpen day. Trevor Richards starting, I'm perfectly fine with if I'm a fan. I'll watch that change up, but I'm a But Richards. Trevor Richards pitched the eighth inning last night. He's right back into leverage. Yep. You, can, you want to talk about the bullpen being good, uh, and, and we intended to talk about, so we'll pivot off of Manoa for until you know we get his next complex league <laughs> update or whatever, but Romano Swanson Meza makes a pretty effective back end. All three of those guys are in the top 50 and win probability added. Yep. Also all really, really high in games played. Um, part of why I haven't loved the bullpen day thing, and you and I kicked this around the other week too about Trevor Richards just and how far you want to extend him because of, hey, it's a heavy changeup usage. What if guys see it a second time through? But also like Trevor Richards, the reliever, has been good enough to make that trio a foursome at the back end of the bullpen. Yeah, I think... They've got a window right now where they don't need a bullpen day for July 1st. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So so I'm fine with him kind of slotting, kind of rotating back for a few days into those kind of leverage moments until you're getting closer to those days where you need a bit of length. But yeah, he's been, it's so interesting to see. Uh, I think it was Saturday. Um, so the producer generally pitches ideas for the opening of a broadcast. Um, the Saturday... I pitched the idea of, hey, let's talk about how good this bullpen's been. Didn't go well that day. <laughs> um, and then on Sunday, I pitched the idea, and we're laughing about this in the game. I'm just recalling the memories of, let's talk about how good this defense has been. And then Sunday was not a good defense day in Texas. Um, so you can blame me maybe for the jinxes. But um, the bullpen is just interesting to see over the last two, three games. When your starters give you a uh, expected amount of innings, and you can slot your guys in how well they look. And when they're asked to come in in the fourth or fifth, things don't tend to go well. So it's like these guys are good. Um, we, on that day, on the Saturday, we showed a, a list of numbers. Showed they were top five in whiff rate, chase rate, strikeout percentage. Like this is, even though it doesn't feel like it, even though everyone doesn't throw 101, this has been a dominant bullpen by a lot of metrics. So, And to your point about guys, you know, it, it's it's a different ask to have guys come in, in in different spots. And, I mean, I'm sure there's, like, a competitive element to leverage as well that, like, I don't know that we would expect a guy. I mean, we wouldn't expect a guy pitching in low leverage to pitch that well because you use worse pitchers in low leverage. But even Trevor Richards, for example, his he's been basically excellent with the exception of, of two blowups. One was he came in in the sixth inning in that Philly series and got asked to get, they tried to get six outs out of him um, and, and it just didn't work. That was, It wasn't a great day for him, but they were asking a lot of him. And the other one was he was pitching with a six-run lead in a nothing game against Kansas City like early, early, early in the season. Yep. So, and, and I don't I don't count three earned over three as an opener the other day as a, as a bad outing. Like it, it wasn't great, but it's completely fine with what you're asking him for. So um, I think there's an element to that. Now, in terms of how this bullpen structures at the back end, We've got a month ahead we'll, where we'll surely be talking about trade targets and looking at your David Bednars of the world and who is this year's, I almost said Anthony Bass, not Anthony Bass, who is this year's Zach Bob? Joe Kelly, maybe? Yeah. Chicago, we've, yeah. we've been looking at. Yeah. There's, yeah. A few, there's a bunch of names. There are a bunch. Um, however, for the time being, Trevor Richards, and they're acknowledging there's a bullpen day or two ahead taking Trevor Richards out of the bullpen day equations because your back end could use an extra. Like, I guess where I'm trying to get at is like Trevor Richards as a, an anchor of the bullpen days is obviously important, 
But big picture, I wonder if Trevor Richards as a seventh slash eighth inning guy who can get the workloads for Swanson and Romano and Mesa down is maybe more valuable over the long haul. Yeah, I think it I think it definitely is over okay. the long haul. Um he's become, as you said, like he's I think he's firmly slotted into, you know, that fourth spot in terms of the confidence mm-hmm. or leverage or whatever, even though Garcia's looked better of late. Um, At least yeah. the velocities there with Garcia. Oh, yeah, for sure. Fastball still looks good for him. I think there's been some weird results with him. But, yeah, like I think figuring out what you're doing from that fifth spot in the rotation is, you know, I'm sure top of the list for the front office that – they want to figure something out, whether it's external, internal. They're, I don't think they're going to keep going like this because I do think Richards has become a very valuable piece in the bullpen. And I just think they'll it'll get sorted out one way or the other, whether that's Manoa coming up, whether it's somebody else coming up, or an extra Chad option. Dallas, baby. Another good start at double A yesterday. <laughs> I I have joked about it. We're gonna sell we're ourselves. Now, eh? We're going to sell ourselves on one of these double A guys at some point. Although Paxton Schultz is now at triple A. So who knows? There there are options that are awkward because of 40 man spots and things like that. Yeah. But you there is no rule that you have to use an opener and can't go to your farm system or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I and I do think yeah, I think it's gonna be less opener. I think they've probably got one. Maybe two of these opener days left, but I, I really think that it'll be something else after that. Okay, so with respect to the bullpen, yesterday Jordan Romano gets his 22nd save. That leads the major leagues. His ERA after spending a, a good chunk of time in the threes is now down around 250. The f- swing and miss stuff is not a career. There was that, he, he missed so many bats during the shortened pandemic season. But other than that 15 inning blip, this is the most he's missed bats from a pure swing and miss perspective. Strikeout rate isn't, you know, quite as high as 21, but he's missing the most bats. That fastball slider, you know, whatever split you want to use, he used one split for righties, one split for 50-50 le- and 60-40 or whatever. Um, where are you with Jordan Romano right now in terms of, I mean, comfort level, but also discussing him as one of the more reliable closers in baseball over the last couple of years. If the rhythms and pacings of a Blue Jay season to me are very interesting because one of the interesting rhythms and pacings with fans is Jordan Romano and mm-hmm. how they talk about him. And essentially, every time he blows a save or a couple saves over the course of a week or 10 days, you get a bunch of the fan base that laments that he's not a dominant closer. He should throw his fastball more, et cetera, et cetera. And then they don't notice that he's dominant and reliable for two or three weeks mm. until he blows another save. And then they start the same narrative. Um, if you look at over the last month, he is 12 for 12 in saves, 146 ERA, 15 strikeouts, three walks, no home runs. Like that's literally it's- sign me up for a closer like that who doesn't give up bombs. Yeah converts every save. Like, to me, he's very reliable. He's among the best in baseball. I'm not going to say he's the best in baseball. He's not. Um, but you, if you do look at the three-year window since he took the job, he's, he's top among. five in saves and top five in uh, conversion percent. Like, yeah. how how often you actually convert the save. Yeah, so, not as dominant as some other guys, but in terms of, like, the... If you are evaluating the closer job by saves, which is faulty, but it's how a lot of people do it, um, yeah, he's, he's up there. And... What's interesting to me is that what I briefly mentioned there was the pitch mix discussion, which always comes up. Literally, anytime he gives up a hit on a slider, people say he should be throwing his fastball more. And our good friend Eric Kareen hmm. was on Twitter yesterday and brought this up. Like, why doesn't he throw more fastballs? 
the fastball is dominant. And it's interesting with, and I don't think this is only Romano, but it's interesting when people look at how a pitch or a whole bunch of pitches are doing for a certain pitcher, they say, oh, that pitch is doing well, throw that pitch more, without kind of acknowledging that maybe the pitch mix is what's allowing that pitch to be really good. Right. It's the Marco Estrada changeup. It's the Kevin Gosman splitter. If it's so deadly, why don't you throw it 100% of the time? Now, that's actually what Trevor Richards does yeah, with his changeup, yeah. but it's, yeah, uh, that there has is more a limit to, do with to it. Trevor Richards' breaking ball, which he shelved. But yeah. like with Romano, I really think his fastball's at its best when a hitter really doesn't know whether it's fastball or slider coming. Mm -hmm. So, you know, is there a specific usage? I don't know, but I think if it's around 50%, that's when he's his fastball's at its absolute best. The only time in his career he was big, heavy fastball usage was out of pure necessity when he was trying to figure out how to throw a breaking ball in the new sticky enforcement era. Hmm. And that's if you look at his usage by month or by game – there was a period of three months or in so. In 2021, yeah. When he was figuring out how to throw a baseball under these new rules. Now, for me, I like that. To me, that's like, hey, Jordan Romano's a rule-following, good old Canadian <laughs> boy trying to figure out how it works. Now, who knows what the reality is, but I I really think he is at his fastball's at its best when usage is around 50-50. And I think, if you were to ask him, he feels more confidence in being able to locate his slider in good spots spots that keep him out of trouble, uh, to the edges, down in the zone. If you look at the heat maps, that's kind of what they look like. I think fastball, it's a great pitch. I think sometimes it'll catch a lot of the plate or he'll spray it. So it's a really good pitch, but I think it's also perfectly suited for the usage that he's throwing right now. Also a little situational. You know, you got three-run lead. Maybe you lean on the fastball a little bit more, and if you catch some heart, you're okay with that. Against the lefty, you're obviously going to use the fastball more than you, you do against the righty because the slider is so effective. Righty, righty. Um, okay, let, let's switch to the hitting side because there were some signs of life yesterday. Yep. Uh, strung a lot of hits together, five for 10 with runners in scoring position. I think all five of those hits came in one inning. It was just one big burst. Um, from within that, a couple guys had multi-hit games. Who, who do you want to start with? Because I know there were a couple of the multi-hit guys are guys that have been creeping in this direction, it seemed like. Well, first, the wrist stuff is very interesting to me because it's really hard to ever evaluate. I don't know if we've talked about this on air, but I almost, I don't talk about it a lot on social media. I don't talk about it a lot when I'm working on games or pregame shows because I think generally it's really hard to talk about it other than some bad, batted ball luck. Mm -hmm. There's sometimes when like there's some drastic changes in approach, but really I never have much to talk about. So I never pitch it to analysts or people on air because I don't know what the discussion is mm -hmm. other than pointing at the numbers and saying, wow, these numbers are bad. Yeah. And I've had, I've had analytics people on here. I've had old school people. Bobby Valentine was on with me and even he's everyone kind of agrees that like, I mean, maybe it's a tiny bit of a skill at the individual level and maybe there's a tiny bit of you get pitched differently and can't handle that. But for the most part, everyone seems to believe that you will eventually just come back to whatever your natural level of ability is yeah. with runners in scoring position. And that's kind of what happened last week. Like, yeah. balls just find holes. And yeah, and Texas has gotten ice cold with runners in scoring position after being the greatest runners in scoring position team for a third of the season. Yeah, and fans don't want to hear that. Like, fans don't want to hear it's just going to change. But, but it's, it's like, it's like three-point variance too, right? It's like, yeah. okay, I, I get that it will would eventually balance out, but we don't play these games 10,000 times. Except if you're a Raptors fan. The yes. three-point variance didn't really change. But year. it stayed, like, the three-point variance got to, after 82 games, that's just your true talent level. 
Sorry, I didn't. I didn't try to no, go no. on the Raptors tangent. No, no, it's okay. Um, okay, so the runners in scoring position stuff we we can kind of throw aside. It's a little random, but George Springer comes through with two hits in that game. He's got eight in his last five. We he kind of teased it. We thought he had come out of it at one point, and then he cooled right back off again. Um, are you starting to see the the process stuff you need to see with George Springer? I I don't know. We saw him a few weeks ago. We started. I remember Arden and I were working on a show together, and we were pointing to some measurable things that were changing with him. He had shown some really good sprint speeds, shown some exit velo stuff, just measurable stuff that said, oh, George is coming out of whatever it was. And there was a a narrative about him. I think he was really sick for a few weeks uh, that some people talked about. Mm -hmm. But um, the hitting hasn't really been there. Like, this is his lowest. I I don't have the specific numbers, but OPS Plus is definitely the lowest of his career. I think it's below 110. Um, The interesting discussion with him he's got what a year or two left i wonder if he'll be a leadoff hitter his whole career with Mm -hmm. this team that if this year continues as is or even if just this season if even before this season ends if they say we've seen lineup changes around two three four three four five i'm interested to know whether at some point people say is this team better long term with Bo hitting leadoff and getting just getting Bo and Vladdy as many plate appearances as possible. Well, with Merrifield, their yeah, best hitter. Well, yeah, he's been really, really yeah. good lately. Um, but, and, and look, this is a conversation they're going to have to have at some point. Springer has three more years left on his deal. Yeah. He's not going to be a leadoff hitter in 2026. If this is like, I, I think he'll be better than this, but it's not completely unreasonable to be like, oh, a 33 turning 34-year-old George Springer is now like a 115 to 120 OPS plus guy. Yeah, and it's more of a longer-term discussion, but I am interested. Yeah, I think the lineup in 24-25 is, is, will be interesting because mm-hmm. I think it might – I wouldn't be surprised to see it be Bo Vlad 1-2. And yeah. I think, again, long-term, but I think he Springer, can be better. Springer strikes me as like – I mean, obviously he's this historic leadoff guy with the power and things like that and does can run a little bit. I kind of like him as a five spot guy too, depending on, I mean, obviously depending on what, how your, the rest of your lineups constructed and stuff. But I do think that that the combination of, of pop and ability to work good plate appearance, yeah. like it's why Matt Chavin was so good in that spot when he was on, right? Yep. It's a, it's a pretty good spot to, it's not the cleanup spot, but it's still a pretty important spot and, and a spot in the lineup. You want some pop in. Yeah, I really think, and I do think Springer will be better. And I, when he's going right, he's demolishing fastballs. That's been his, that's been his MO for his whole career. So I think it's it's not unlike what we've seen with Bo a little bit of late, if he can lay off all the spin. And they've faced a lot of good pitchers. We threw up a graphic of whip leaders a couple of days ago, and, like, we realized that, oh, the Jays have faced, like, four of these guys yeah. or four or five of these Tattooed guys. Tattooed John Gray, though. Yeah, they did. Yeah, he didn't, he didn't have it that day. But so they've faced some tough pitching, and with him, it's very similar to Bo. If he can lay off that those breakers down and away – work himself into fastball counts, I think the production will get better. What was your favorite memory from Bo's, like, 80 plate appearance walkless streak? Because I know you were all over that <laughs> I, one. I know. I don't feel like we brought it up once, and I was like, okay, we don't need to bring it up again. And I even made a point on the graphic we showed of showing, like, he still had five home runs and yeah. racking up a ton of hits. So it's not like it wasn't a huge deal, but it's it still limits his, as I've said before, and we've talked about with guys on our broadcast, like, it limits – his ceiling when he's chasing a ton and June is looking at he's among it's among his highest rates ever by month for chase rate and he's chasing breakers like 60% this Mm. month like more than he ever has so and to me and it's 
His on-base is like 280, and his OPS is like seven-something. So if, yes, he can still rack up hits, he's a gifted, gifted hitter. But when he's chasing at to this level, he's a league average hitter. Yeah, and it'll come back around. It'll 100%. be, I mean, he's going to lead the league in hits and maybe win the AL batting title. He's not going to win the overall batting title, I don't think. No. Uh, Luis Arise has yeah. almost Somebody 100 points on, the other, on him. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so you mentioned, hey, maybe potentially George Springer is lower in the order in future years. Vlad Bo won two. And then obviously the piece that's in the middle there is Kevin Biggio hitting third or fourth uh, <laughs> now that he exactly. is. I mean, in okay, so I... I I understand that Kevin Biggio is is a bench guy and like maybe you're like 10th man, someone who's going to get a lot of plate appearances and starts and bounce around a lot. Do you not have a little trouble evaluating what Kevin, like the sporadic playing time and he's very inconsistent as well, just as a matter of a pretty boomer bust offensive package anyway. Um, it, it's been a little hard to navigate when he's actually improving and when he's just like having a good couple days. Yeah, it's, that's just life as a bench player in yeah. Major League Baseball. But what I find interesting with him, and I haven't talked to him specifically about this, but I think one potential idea, we've seen the walk rate go down. We've seen swing and miss kind of go up. Personally, I feel like he might have made a choice, like a conscious de decision to be, listen, if I'm only going to play a couple days a week, I'm going to try and make it like I'm going to, up my variance a little bit, take more threes, but swing for the fences. And yeah. I'll try and make some more damage. It might mean striking out more. It might mean walking less, but it'll also mean I'll run into some home runs more often. And we had a graphic, which I don't know if it ever got to air. But him being third in home run rate yes. on the team after Jansen and Bo? Yeah. yeah. Or set, at a certain point, he was second. It was. I, I don't know if it made the broadcast. It was in your the, yeah, the, it was the in emails my notes. you sent yeah. out. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was Jano, Biggio, and Bichette were the home run leaders by like home run per plate appearance. So I think maybe he's made a trade-off in terms of I'm going to try and get a pitch to drive for doubles for home runs. You know, you can argue the logic or the... I mean, it's not a bad thing for a bench guy, right? Like, especially in pinch hit scenarios. And yep. I, I don't know, obviously the that... The fact that he has the ability to come in and work a good at a good at bad and be patient, stuff like that is valuable. But I do think there's something to be said for the guys who play sporadically and pinch hit situations. You want a little boom or bust to it. Um, I think you could say that. Yeah, and I, I really do think that's what he's doing. And whether it turns into more playing time, you know, Witt's been playing so, so well. Um, but he's it's been it's been cool to see because he he works a ton and he went through a stretch there where even one of his home runs was a foul ball, but uh, yes. he, uh, he's he been doing really well, and it's yeah. it's good to see because he really does. He cares, and he puts in the work. Um, so it is the NBA draft tonight, and you are, as much as you are reasonable about all things baseball, you can get a little unreasonable when it comes to the Toronto Raptors. I told you I would allow you one hot Raptors take or, or something like that since it is draft day. Uh, what do you got? How are you feeling about the Raptors? I'm just a Raptors fan. That's all I am. Yeah. Just a Raptors fan who sometimes texts Michael Grange and Blake Murphy at <laughs> 9 a.m. on a random Tuesday in February. Um, but it's been – I don't know what they're going to do. Um, who knows? It seems as if they might be running it back. And my only comment to that is it's been interesting to see compared to a couple years ago when we heard Masai say – just derisively talk about the play-in or just getting play -in into the for playoffs. Um, to see the decisions they've made over the last six, seven months – in contrast to that 
era um, or that timeline a couple of years ago, it's it's a stark, stark contrast. And maybe I feel like my what Miami did is like influencing a lot of teams this year. Um, but I feel like Miami's an outlier for a whole bunch of reasons, for Jimmy Butler reasons, for um, but yeah, if they I'm a huge Scotty Barnes fan, mm. but I don't really know what the intrinsic value is in bringing everyone back. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, my entire thing is and has been, and especially in writing my annual cat primer and things like that, has been, yeah, pick a direction. It doesn't, I don't really have a strong feeling on which one it needs to be, exactly. but it should be one of them. Uh, and that's, I mean, maybe we'll get a little hint at that tonight. I feel like it's going to have to come. We'll get an answer tonight one way or the other. No. Yeah. I, I would, we'll, we'll get some sort of uh update today. Obviously it's the draft. Uh, all right. I gotta let you go. We got Veer Mahan on the other side, uh, waiting to chat with us. So Chris Black, thank you so much. Anytime. Keep up the great work producing sports at broadcast and at down to black when you're not taking a little break. Uh, and I mean, little break. <laughs> we'll be, we'll be back. We'll talk to the million dollar arm when Jay's talk plus continues on sports at 590, the fan and sports at 360. Breaking down the top stories in the NHL every day. The Jeff Mary show subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Joining us now, it's WWE superstar Veer Mahan, former cricket player, former baseball player. He was the million-dollar arm. Veer, how are you, man? I'm doing well. How are you? I am excellent. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for also for on Twitter, the constant gym motivation. The shirts are like challenges. I don't see them enough. Uh, man, it's uh, <laughs> it, it's uh, there's some fun quips in there from you, man. It's good stuff. Appreciate it. Uh, so, Veer, I do want to talk to you about, you know, what's going on on the WWE side, but this is a baseball show. Um, the Toronto Blue Jays are doing a cricket day down at the ballpark this weekend. So we've been kind of, you know, trying to fill the listeners in on the similarities between the sports, the differences between the sports. I thought, who better than the million-dollar arm? So for anyone who doesn't know, uh, there was a there were a couple of agents who went to India, tried out something like 35,000 different players um, to see if any people who had a cricket background could throw at a major league level. You won that competition. Um, going back to your background, though, how... Like, I know you were still pretty young when all of that happened. I think you were 19 or 20. Um, what was your cricket background like at that point? I was just playing for fun. I was in a sports academy in Lucknow where I was training for track and field to qualify for Olympic. And cricket was my part-time playing growing up. Um, and you were also, it was fun. You were also a, a national medalist in javelin too, right? So you've got all of these things that are, are throw-oriented. Um, so when they when they come down there and, and they're doing this thing, what was your like? What was your impression of baseball? Did you did you know baseball? Were you a baseball fan at all at that point? I had no idea at <laughs> all about baseball whatsoever. Never seen a baseball. Never picked up baseball. Never threw a baseball. That was the very first time when I heard the competition about the million dollar arm all i knew and all it excites me to go uh, participate in the competition is the million dollar <laughs> just like every other young young man 
trying to make a million to make their families' lives better. And <laughs> I was I was looking at the big shot. Uh, so what did you do to prep for that? Like I, you had played cricket as your part-time thing. Obviously there's some overlap from javelin as well, just in terms of kind of what muscles you're working and stuff, but how does a cricket player and javelin thrower prep for a baseball competition? 100%. Definitely cricket and javelin, um, prepped me to, to, uh, cause it's the same kind of same, same motion cricket going downhill down, just like a baseball uh, you just have to swing your arm around in a cricket baseball while it's a little wind up and over top the head. Javelin, kind of same. So somewhat, I feel like the javelin and the cricket had huge help uh, for success in the baseball. Um, okay, so in the lead up to this competition, were like, how did it work at the sports academy that you were at? Were they like, okay, everyone, here are a bunch of baseballs. Let's let's get you guys practicing. Let let's see who who is good. Or is it was it more of a just like show up to this tryout day? You know, a, a little more cold, a little less experienced. So at the time, I was eighteen year old. I was in the high school exam in the sports academy, and I asked my. Mother, obviously, um, anywhere I was going, I had to get permission from my mom and dad to go anywhere. I asked my mom, I said, hey, there's this competition in New Delhi um, from um, Seven Figure Management. I explained what that was, and she said straight up, nope, you're not going. You're not going to waste your one year, you know, going to uh, try and try out for baseball that you have no idea what if you fail, then you're not just failing there, but also your school one year behind as a young man um you know I, my dream was to, growing up to build a home for my mom and dad and make them retire and that was the only one way i thought is the fastest way to uh, build a home and retire my mom and dad was to succeed in the baseball so i didn't listen to, to <laughs> her um i hopped in the slowest train in india and as soon as I found out that in New Delhi it's happening, I took the slowest train, um, had to hide myself in the toilet for about 18 hours at that time. Obviously, I couldn't ask uh, any money from my parents because um, I told them I, I, will, I will stay in, the, in school and I'll focus my high school exam, but I, <laughs> I left. Uh, luckily, got there. First time I took the baseball through... Um, 88 miles an hour, um, got selected for the final competition, which was in Mumbai. That was the very first time um, going flying to Mumbai to for the final competition. I went to final um, through 90 miles an hour, and that's where the journey began. <laughs> 90 miles an hour, your first couple times throwing a baseball is pretty wild. Um, so you win this competition. What is your family's reaction at that point? Because at that point, you can go to them and say, look, I won this money, and here's what else I could do with this. Was your family a little more understanding, or were they mostly just ticked off that you had kind of disobeyed them like that? Uh, if I tell you, you wouldn't believe it. <laughs> I called my beautiful mother. With that check in my hand, I said, Mom, you wouldn't <laughs> believe it. I win the whole competition. And my mom's first reaction was, wait, you didn't listen to me? You left your high school exam? I said, yes. And she hung up on me. Wow. And <laughs> I was very disappointed at the time. I said, wow, I can't believe my mom just hung up on me. I just win the entire competition. But it took me long to understand that every parent out there, they want nothing but the best for their kids. To become a successful in a right way, not to just 
being young and trying to chase money. That's what we all do when we are young. We want to make a lot of money. But what do we do with our money when we were young? That's what my mom and dad were concerned, to make sure I don't choose any wrong path in life. But later on in life, they understood that my dream was to, you know, build them home and make them retire, and that's what I did. Um, later on, when I reached home and I explained the situation, and they understood. Hmm. So, Well, I'm glad they came around. And then so through part of this, you get to go. You get to go work with the USC pitching coaches and things like that. Um, you eventually end up signing with the Pirates. Um, you, I'd imagine a huge part of that transition was not only learning you know language and culture but trying to learn the sport of baseball what was that like coming from a cricket background trying to pick up you know the nuances of the game of baseball once you were over in america it was very challenging it was very very challenging first first few months is because new to the game new to the country new to the language culture everything was shocking at first um, first time being in America ever. Um, never thought that I would end up in a, such a great country to be a huge opportunity to be able to make a difference and open the door for a lot of Indian kids. And it was, you know, the first time it was scary. I thought I will not be able to be, be successful because it's different sports uh, and also the language barrier. But I feel like, like anything in the world, if you put more than 110% of your effort, and you'll get nothing but success. So I had to train morning and evening, twice a day, every single day. And after seven months, finally, we were able to sign the contract with the Pittsburgh Pirates. But it was, it was a long, long process. As you were going through that, um, how much of the way you learned baseball was through the lens of cricket? Like, oh, this is similar to this. This is different from this. Like, the, obviously, I, I know Javelin was your primary, but you had a good familiarity with cricket. Um, did that kind of help you pick up the new sport, or, or was it more like you'd come across things like, oh, this is it in cricket, but it's got to be different from baseball? Like, what is the overlap between those two sports as you learned baseball? So first time when I got to the L.A., I started catching bare hand and, <laughs> and, and that <laughs> like the way we catch in the cricket, it's, uh, it's different. doesn't matter how, how fast, how hard people try to hit, throw it at you and you just catch it. But in the baseball, it's a little different. Um, it took me a while to work on my mechanic and just like every other sports. So it was just, um, I feel like the similarity was more helped me. Just the throwing part, the the velocity, but the working on um, constancy that every single day have to build my arm, and I wasn't used to throw that much, whether it was a cricket or in javelining. I never threw that much, but coming into here and learning, I had to build my arm, and that was that was a lot to you know, in arm, especially when you never have thrown baseball that much. Hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a big and, you know, timing wise and the, the ramp up and everything like that. Uh, I'm curious where the differences is. Obviously, the, the velocity on a fastball and, and how you locate that, there are some similarities there. And I know there are different types of pitches in cricket as well. But, you know, once you start working on like a breaking ball or something like that, how different is that from what you were used to in cricket? Um, I feel like the seam changes, the seam changes. Um, even in uh, cricket, I mean, there's a spinner, there's fast, 
Um, but in the baseball, I feel like it, you have a more stim to play around with it. Like you can throw knuckleball, curveball, slider, split change. Um, there's a bunch of stuff. It took me obviously a while to learn, but it all came from the trick from the baseball, uh, the cricket. So I know you threw uh, a slider at one point. You've joked that that's your clothesline uh, as well in the ring. Uh, <laughs> yes. Was that the pitch that you, you know, that was the one you were able to, to develop the most? I, I know, like, I can see your minor league stats, but it's a little hard to find, you know, okay, what was what was Rinku throwing at that point? Um, was the slider kind of your main secondary? Yes, slider was the main, especially when going against the left hand. So you, you do a couple seasons in uh, the Pirates minor league system. I, I know you had a couple injuries as well. You had the, the Tommy John and then the broken elbow. Um, during that time, the movie Million Dollar Arm comes out. What, what was your reaction to the movie? Like, obviously, anyone would be like, holy cow, there's a movie being made about me. But, um, you know, you, what was your reaction and your reaction to Siraj Sharma being cast as you? That was exciting. That was exciting uh, to be part of it. Uh, Sudar Sarma uh, reminded me of my journey when I first came to America, how skinny and how little I was. <laughs> um, so the character fits perfect. Um, so it, it was a great experience and exciting that the world got to watch the Million Dollar Arm and the story where I came from, and um, the, especially to the kids around the world. Uh, no matter where you came from, and um, as long as you're willing to to put your mind into something great, bigger picture in your life, and you will gain the success. So that was very, very exciting. Obviously, the other side of it, um, having deal with uh, Tommy John surgery and broken elbow, uh, that's never good for athletes in um, in any sports. But, you know, being an athlete, that's what sometimes we have to deal with it. And, you know, and I came back stronger. You did. And so you last pitched it in 2016. I know you, you know, you got to WWE around 2018. What was that transition like? How, how did you, you know, you said you, you were this skinny kid when you first came over and now, you know, you're, you've obviously the working out style has changed uh, to get to WWE, but how did you, how did you come to wrestling as your, your kind of next thing after baseball? See, WWE definitely made me become a better athlete. Uh, we're going back. So um, when I left the baseball, I was just deciding uh, what is the next for, for my journey. And I remember I was sitting in a, in a Chicago, 2 a.m. in the morning, just trying, going back and forth. What is the next? What should, you know, I could do to, to um, get this story out and, you know, to make people more aware of, the, especially the younger one. Um, I spoke to my mother. I said, hey, what do you think about the football? So obviously she didn't know what was American football. And she said, oh, no, 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 that is too too dangerous. Uh, we were very close to um, speaking to Ray Lewis to start training and everything. That didn't happen. My mother told not to. Um, and then I said, okay, what about the UFC? She said, oh, no, this is no way. No way. <laughs> we're not doing that. I said, all right, mom, what do you think about the WWE? So she said, well, I don't know. That's kind of like the big no for that one. I said, no, 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 mom. Maybe you already got to say, too, let me, let me go become a WWE superstar. It takes a lot to be one. So 
Finally, she said yes. And obviously, you know, every parent, they want their kids to just be well-being and happy. And she supported throughout my journey, whether it was a javelin throw or, or cricket or baseball or and WWE. So I made, you know, we got connected with the WWE. And at the time, the baseball agent that I was with, he said, man, are you kind of like joking with me? Have you ever seen WWE Superstar? How massive those guys are? I said, yeah, I know. I see them. And he goes, man, I doubt it. I said, listen, don't doubt, brother, because you know, when first I, I got to America, nobody ever thought that India is the first kid will ever sign a professional baseball contract in history. And we did that. And there's a movie about it. So don't doubt. Let's just contact and we'll see where this is going to go. WWE finally reached out, and they gave me four months to uh, to get ready for the tryout. I flew back to India. The WWE try, tryout happened in Dubai. So they gave me four months to start training morning and evening, twice a day, every single day for four months. And Because I had to put more size, obviously, in the baseball. I trained totally different muscles. And, you know, as far as the training, the muscle memory was different than tryout and training for WWE. It's totally different. Um, so it took me four months, got to the tryout, then I really realized, man, this is not what I think that was. This is actually harder than what uh, track and field, harder than the baseball. And these guys are animal. I decided, I said, you know what, I have to be one of these animals. It takes a lot of hard work and dedication to become a WWE superstars. It took me a while to understand. I'm still trying hard to understand the business um, because, you know, guys in there, it takes their whole life to become the greatest. And now, obviously, everything falling apart. WWE have a great system where um, I came to, once I got selected, I came to the Orlando, Florida, where, our performance centers, we have world's best coaching staffs, we have our trainers, everything that we needed. You have every tool WWE provided for you to become one of the best superstars possible in the industry. So obviously the coaches helped a lot, and especially those coaches, they already been there, done that, best of the best, and being able to get the training from them. And now here I am. Here you are, and, and now you're on Monday Night Raw every week as part of Indusheer with with Sangha, who, uh, um, you know, another uh, Indian wrestler, and then Jinder Mahal, who is Indo-Canadian, obviously a very popular figure here. How cool is it for you to be a part of a group that, you know, represents and, and elevates Indian athletes like that in the same way that you tried to do as a baseball player as well? It's great because Jinder Mahal already been into the system for a long time. And he has all the experience taking us, Sangha and I, in the chair in his wings and flying. And basically, we get to learn so much from Jinder Mahal. Obviously, he has been there and done everything. So that's a cool experience. And as a, as a group, I think we're the, one of the most strongest groups that came from you know, India to being able to represent 1.5 billion people. So it's, it's exciting. Every single day is exciting working with the group. Well, I'm glad you're getting to do it, man. I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying the the Twitter and Instagram part of it as well. The uh, all the smack talk and everything like that. Uh, you guys are doing great. Thanks so much for taking the time out here. I really appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Avir Mahan, WWE superstar, former cricket player, javelinist.
minor league baseball player. Uh, his real name is Rinku Singh. If you want to Google him and read more about his story as the million dollar arm, uh, as it were. And, you know, I don't, the, there's a movie as well. I, I kind of giggle a little bit at, at, you know, the agents who put all this together and then they're like, yeah, yeah, cast John Hamm as me. Uh, that, that's the way to do it. Um, it'll also be really fun to see if, uh, you know, it's been a little bit since WWE did a live event uh, in India, the, the reaction that, you know, now that WWE has been able to find and develop and produce some some homegrown stars, uh, what that will look like when they get back there. Um, as a reminder, Monday Night Raw, Friday Night SmackDown, they're on Sportsnet's network or Sportsnet Now, uh, if you prefer. So you can keep up with what Veer is doing there as well. Big pay-per-view coming up next weekend with Money in the Bank uh, as well. And a little side note, got to talk to Omos the other day um, for a story I have coming at sportsnet.ca next month sometime. Um, he is uh, a Nigerian professional wrestler who came through, came to the United States as a basketball player originally through Masai Ujiri's Giants of Africa program. So um, a lot of baseball and basketball tie-ins popping up around uh, wrestling these days, which makes a lot of sense because they have consistently over the years pulled from athletes and other sports. Traditionally that's been football or Olympic wrestling, but Hey, if you're a basketball player or a baseball player, there is a lot of real athleticism uh, involved there as well. That, that could maybe translate if you also have the character and like Veer laid out for us, the motivation to basically double your size over the course of, uh, of four months. We're going to take a break. Um, as a reminder, tomorrow, Vivek Jacobs is going to join us. We'll talk some Jays stuff. We'll, we'll maybe do a little bit of Raptors post-draft stuff also. Um, but Vivek is a huge cricket guy. And we, ha him and I have kind of gone over the years back and forth on, you know, how does a, a baseball fan come to learn cricket a little bit and, and vice versa. So uh, we'll do more of that to tee up cricket day down at the ballpark this weekend. Um, those jerseys look pretty good too I, I don't think i'll be at saturday's game but if someone wants to sneak one of those aside for me uh we can do that as well we're gonna take a break when we come back we'll talk to mike petriello of mlb.com we'll put him on the spot is mvp baseball 05 the greatest baseball video game of all time we'll see what mike has to say as jay's talk plus continues on sports at 590 the fan and sports at 360 Everything Raptors before and after the games. The Raptor Show with Will Liu. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. That song, of course, uh, indicates we're going to talk about some MVP baseball 2005. I think Mike Petriello agrees with me that it's the best baseball video game of all time. Certainly in the discussion for best video game soundtrack of all time as well. Or maybe not best, just the one that I most associate with a video game. That song, of course, is uh, You Owe Me an IOU by Hot Hot Heat. There's also Dropkick Murphys was on that one. And you will know us by the trail of dead uh there was a lot of good stuff on there uh, i know mike was fond of it as well the other thing mike's fond of that i forgot to i didn't do my immaculate grid this morning it's a new baseball thing that's kind of like a baseball version of wordle or something like that it's basically let's remember some guys the game if you are a baseball hardcore who likes looking back at uh, at old players and trying to test your baseball memory, it's a fun thing to do. Mike Petriello has a steel trap of a baseball memory of MLB.com. Mike, how are you? Have you immaculate gridded yet this morning? 
It did, Blake. I only got eight out of nine, though. I failed on, I'm actually really upset on what I failed on. I failed on the 40 home run season in a year for a World Series champion. That's so obvious. There's so many great players who did it, and I screwed it up. Damn. You just guessed someone who probably had like 37 or 38 or something like that. Uh, it was just like for the wrong team. They won a World Series. Uh, somewhere else. I can't remember. It wasn't great. I should have gone with, I don't want to spoil this for everybody, but you could go with Babe Ruth. That's an obvious one. Hmm. Yeah, I guess. Uh, yeah, I mean, my my memory of which seasons he won World Series is not particularly sharp, but this is why Immaculate Grid uh, is so much fun. I was talking about before you came on too, Mike, I, I played, I, I had intended to play you in with Hot Hot Heat because I I think if I'm remembering correctly, you are in the correct camp that MVP Baseball 05 is the greatest baseball video game. Uh, absolutely. I thought I heard, was that the IROC Z song? No, it was uh, You Owe Me and I Owe You we were coming in with. Uh, gotcha. Yes, I I did hear that. And thank you for that. I appreciated it. Nice. Um, so what is it? I mean, I talk about this game every once in a while. What is it for you that stood out about that game or stands out about that game uh, to this day? Because I talked to you know, a handful of baseball hardcores over the years. And it's a, it's a pretty resounding, not unanimous, but like you, it, it's shocking. I'd imagine with Madden or NBA live and NBA 2k or even the NHL games, there is some disagreement among which version and which year is, is the best, but MVP baseball 05 has a pretty good share of the vote. Why do you think that is? I think for a couple of reasons, I think for the time, the graphics were pretty good, you know, pretty advanced. I mean, it, would it surprise you if most people who think that that is the best game are roughly around my or our? Yes, because I would have been 24 years old at that point and definitely playing a lot more video games than <laughs> I do now. The soundtrack was great, of course. And, um, you know, the, the those games of those times, I, I just think they were more fun. They, you know, the more realistic you get the less it becomes like a video game, if that makes sense. And I think that was just the perfect mix of we got past 8-bit graphics, but we're not into like Uncanny Valley territory. And also I was 24 and I barely had a job and I could play video games all day. Yeah, I think I was, I think it was in grade 12 when that one came out. So I would have been playing an awful lot of, of video games at that point. Uh, I don't do that now, but I'm with you. I do think that like, not not just the uncanny valley of some of the graphics, but like the complexity of the controls, like not to make myself seem dumb, but like, hey, this button to swing for contact and this button to swing for power is a lot more enjoyable to me than jiggle these two joysticks and act like you're actually, if I could actually hit a baseball at the level I want to hit it in a video game, I would just, I would go play baseball at a high level. I don't need to, I think the golf games are the ones that really got me where it's like, yeah, if you're bad at golf, you'll be bad at this video game. Like, cool. That doesn't really do it for me. Um, are you, you're not, a, you're not a, probably not playing as much video games now, but you have kids. Have they gotten into the sports video games as well? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I was going to say, so my son is seven and he's a huge baseball fan. And for Christmas last year, we got him his, uh, a Nintendo Switch, right? Which was great because, you know, the PlayStation, it's just too complicated for little kids. So the baseball game on the Nintendo Switch, you can kind of play it as this button is for power and this button is for contact and it's right up his alley. The only problem with it. So the other day he wanted to play and um, he wanted to be the Blue Jays, which I was like, hey, that's great. That's great. Kevin Kiermeyer in the video game hit three home runs. And all of a sudden, I'm questioning the reality of the video game because that doesn't seem like a thing Kevin Kiermaier usually does. He also put up like 17 runs on me. And he's never going to stop talking about it. So that was pretty fun too. <laughs> well, and it, it, look, you're a big man to come on here and admit it that that your son and Kevin Kiermaier banged on you. It's okay. It happens. Um, so I we I do want to talk about Kevin Kiermaier, but I, I'm curious about your son wanting to play as the Blue Jays. Has he like, have you accidentally turned him into a Blue Jays fan by way of doing Blue Jays Central and coming to Toronto sometimes and stuff? 
God, I wish he he insists he's a Rockies fan, even oh. though we live in Brooklyn, New York. Yeah, I know. The reason why is when he was young, like, you know, three, he had an obsession with purple. Everything had to be purple. His plates and his dishes had to be purple. His shirts had to be purple. And I'm watching a Dodgers game one day and they're playing Colorado, who's wearing like their solid purple color tops. And he's like, <gasps> there's a purple baseball team. And I'm like, no, I, I wish you didn't know that they're never any good and they will never be any good. And he's loyal. He's too loyal. Mm. Like, like I have a Mets hat for him. I'm going to take him to the Yankees game on the 4th of July. Like I'm still holding out hope, but he swears he still loves the Rockies. And I, I feel like I failed as a parent in some way, although he loves baseball. I, I mean, I'm a great parent. Yeah. You win some, you lose some. And I look, maybe it can be a way to educate him on all the bad things a baseball front office can be and can do uh, over the years. Or, Hey, maybe you just like really lean into the rocktober year, um, which wasn't long after MVP baseball. Oh, five would have come out and, and Hey, Hey, there was one good Rockies year and we can just focus on that. And that's, uh, that's about it. Um, so you did mention Kevin Kiermeyer. You wrote for MLB.com last week about Kevin Kiermeyer's incredible defense, not just now, but over the years. And one of the things that struck me in that was, you know, I think you referenced the scout or just like an old scouting adage that around 26 or 27, that's kind of when we see defense peak generally. And Kevin Kiermeyer is 33 years old and still doing it at this high level. There were a ton of gems within that piece that you did at MLB.com, Mike, but how high up on the wow factor is the fact that Kevin Kiermaier is still this guy at 33? That was it for me. I mean, there's so many defenders, like you say, who come up and they like wow you with their glove and that doesn't last that long. You know, Mike Trout's a great example. When he first came up, he was an incredible defensive center fielder. And for the last couple of years, we've been wondering when he's going to move. Um, you know, Kevin Pillar, I think, is a great example, too. Like, start of his career in Toronto, he was really, really good. And he's still kicking around. And it's, the glove has not been the same. And yet here you have Kiermaier, who a full decade into his career it still looks great, and the metrics love him. And that, that's a nice thing to have here, right, is the eye test and the numbers all match. And the uh, the thing, I think the most interesting leaderboard I had in the piece was that if you look at uh, defensive war for outfielders throughout history, he's second. And a lot of times I will find a leaderboard like that and be like, oh, wow, that's awesome. I got to write about this. That that didn't happen this time. I was like, I'm writing about Kevin Kiermaier, and I will see where this takes me. And then like halfway through it, I found that, and I'm like, oh, this is even better. This is great. I was already going to say this anyway. Because <laughs> you know we can be hyperbolic at times and say everything is the best this or the greatest that. And yet I don't think that's true in this case, right? Like it's been a solid decade. You have the eye test, right? Incredible catches. You have the durability. Like I said, it's been a decade. You have the interesting backstory. Uh, if you remember how he got to the big leagues was he got called up from the minor leagues to play in the tie-breaking game 163 in 2013 and made the wildcard game based entirely on the strength of his defense. And now you have these historic numbers that say, yeah, he's basically uh, second only to Andrew Jones. Like, where's the argument here? I, it's funny. I thought I'd get pushback. No pushback whatsoever. No. Well, I think too, you know, the, he happens to have played his entire career in a division with a couple pretty big media markets. So like, usually it would be Yankees fans or Red Sox fans probably trying to argue and, you know, Jays fans before this year, but all of those teams have had to deal with Kevin Kiermaier's ridiculous defense for years. So I, I think you have this thing where a lot of big media markets have also seen it firsthand, um, you know, forever and had to kind of live through that. So when, when we talk about defensive war, obviously we don't have the best way to quantify 
outfield defense from back in the day. And we've got, you know, StatCast outs above average now. Sports Info Solutions defensive run saves goes back, you know, an extra decade and a half or so. But beyond that, um, how surprised were you when you were going through that, that our, our best attempts at measuring defense from back in the day line up pretty well with reputation? Like, like that leaderboard that has... Andrew Jones, Willie Mays, Paul Blair, Devon White, Kenny Lofton near the top of it. Like it, it, Jesse Barfield in the top 10, who was on our show last week and, and arguably the best outfield arm that we've ever seen. Were you, sh- were you a little surprised at how well the numbers matched the kind of reputation of who the best defenders have been over the years? I was very surprised. So just to give you a, a brief lesson on how these metrics come about since 2016, you have StatCast, which is all the cameras and radars. And since 2003, you have uh, sports info solutions, which is a, basically a bunch of uh, video scouts to oversimplify. And then before that there was nothing. And what happened was, uh, you know, people came up with this way to kind of reverse engineer it just based on box scores that, you know, you can at least tell from the box score throughout all of history, the ball was hit to the center fielder and it was caught or the, you know, the ball wasn't. And it's kind of ingenious. And I wouldn't say that that data allows you to really say like, okay, this guy is second best and this guy is third best. Like it's never going to be that granular. But when you look at the top of the list, I think most people would say Andrew Jones is maybe the best defensive outfielder of all time. Willie Mays, certainly. I know a lot of people don't remember Paul Blair, but he won eight gold gloves, mostly playing for those great Baltimore teams in the seventies with Jim Palmer and everybody. And then at the other end, it's like Gary Sheffield, Adam Dunn, like these DH types who were not very good outfielders. And I was like, you know, I don't think I would like, this is not a hill I'm going to die on as far as like the accuracy of the rankings, but this has passed the smell test. Yes. That's, that's actually pretty decent. I was pleasantly surprised by that. Yeah. The that's, that's the other way to do it, right. Is to look at who's, who's the worst in a metric too. And it's, uh, you know, not to do confirmation bias, but it, it is pretty helpful if the polls, uh, feel accurate. So with Kevin Kiermeyer, um, obviously a lot goes into this and now we are sophisticated enough that we can break it down into, you know, your arm, your sprint speed, maybe what kind of jumps you get and things like that. Do you, do we generally see someone as well balanced as Kevin Kiermeyer in terms of like, Hey, your 90th percentile roughly in all of these things, or do good, like high end outfielders tend to be more of the, like, Hey, specialize in this one thing you're really, really good at. Like how rare is it for Kiermaier to be nineties across the board versus, Hey, I'm 99 in this one thing. And I'm just good at, at the other things. I think it's two things. I, I think the rare thing is that he has continued to do this every single year. He was the best at these things in 2016 and he's <laughs> still the best at these things. Now I've seen guys pop up for a year or two and then get hurt or fall off. I think the closest comparable might be Harrison Bader who's really good, you know, great reactions, great speed. Uh, I know Byron Buxton doesn't really play the outfield anymore. He, he's also elite, but it was less about great reactions for him and more about just incredible speed. And it's it's unusual to see someone like Kiermaier just continuing to do this year in and year out. That's what makes him so special, the fact that he's got all of these skills. And the, the arm, too, as I wrote, uh, no one has had more tracked throws of 100 miles an hour than he has. And that's partially because he's been playing you know, longer than everybody. <laughs> Maybe Ronald Acuna will get there at some point. But to have all that and to have it not decline like at all at this point, especially because he's had hip injuries. And he's had more than mm-hmm. one hip injury. You would expect to see a decline in speed. It's still phenomenal. Like it's a real credit uh, to how you know his natural skill, of course, but how hard he works to maintain them. 
So when we look at the Blue Jays outfield as a whole, obviously Kevin Kiermeyer grades out as very, very good, uh, still among the league leaders in a lot of different areas. When we look at, if we use defensive runs saved, the Blue Jays outfield as a whole grades out as the best in baseball. Um, you know, stack casts outs above average doesn't feel quite as strongly, but but still has them pretty high up there. When you look at this Blue Jays strategy of, you know, Whit Merrifield in left field aside, it's generally on an average day. It's, Hey, we have three guys who were recently playing center field across the outfield. Um, are, are you seeing that in the impact on pitchers? And I think of a Kevin Gosman specifically who had this monstrous historic BABIP last year. Um, like obviously good defense is cool for good defense. Are you seeing the impact on the Jays pitchers as well? Yeah, I, I think absolutely. And with all the effort that the team put into improving the defense, right? Like getting rid of Curry, getting rid of Hernandez and going after Kiermaier and Varsho, you, you had to see that or it was going to have been a big failure. And you're right. The metrics disagree slightly, but for the most part, they all say like, Hey, this is a very good defense. The, uh, the Gosman thing is interesting, right? Because last year he, uh, if you look at defense behind him, he was, I think top three or bottom three, however you want to look at it in terms of pitchers who were the most injured by their defense. Right. So he had minus 11 outs above average behind him, which that's, that's terrible this year. It's about average. So that's a big step up. And, you know, we talked a lot about why that was um, maybe the shifting behind him was inefficient, but essentially he had one of the highest batting average on balls in play of all time. And that's come down a lot this year in part because of the outfield. But what stood out to me is I looked at batted balls that did not go further than 200 feet, right? So balls that generally didn't get past the outer lip, uh, the infield or the shallow uh, outfield grass. And his batting average on balls in play is down like 40 points just among those as well. So it's not just the outfield for him. It's also the infield. Whether that's better positioning, I don't know, because it's the same guys for the most part on the infield. Uh, maybe it's better defense in some sense from uh, Bichette, but it's not just the outfield. Like the outfield has helped everybody. And in Gosman's case, it's just the entire defense has played better for him. Yeah, which is is nice to see. Uh, it would be great if the offense would start playing better for him uh, as well. He has one of the lowest uh, average runs of support yesterday uh, aside. I would be remiss if I didn't at least ask you, Mike, given it was such a, a hot topic last year. And I do think your Kiermaier piece has, has you know, you're, you're back to being a baby face here in Toronto. Uh, but the Matt Chapman stuff, uh, the numbers have kind of bounced back to where he's now somewhere between 2021's metrics and, and 2022's metrics. Um, obviously, last year, the, the metrics didn't grade him very well. 2021, he looked like a, an all-world guy, and now he's somewhere in between. Is that where where you kind of always thought Matt Chapman might land is, hey, he's not the very best defensive third baseman anymore, but he's better than what last year showed? Yeah, I don't think that's unfair to say. Although I will say I turned on the uh, Jays game the other day. I can't remember which one it was. And like the first thing I saw was him kicking around the ball. <laughs> and I was like, oh, no, is anybody going to start texting me about this? I sure hope not. Um, I think it's it's not unfair to say that as he gets a little bit older, he's 30 now, uh, to expect him to continue being like the greatest defensive third baseman you've ever seen, this side of Nolan Arenado, who, by the way, is not having a good year himself on defense, was unreasonable. You know, and I looked at it last year. And when I try to break these things down and figure out, hey, why does a metric not like these guys? One of the things I'm really trying to find is, is there a decline in skill? You know, like for an outfielder, is he lost his speed? Is he lost his reactions? Or is it just stupid stuff, right? Is it like, oh, it was a bad hop or, you know, made a, a bad throw or whatever. And for Kiermaier, excuse me, for Chapman last year, 
mostly it was the throws, you know, his range was still there and he just kept having these weird throwing issues that I could never figure out. Like he'd double clutch a ball or he'd short hop a throw that Vlad couldn't dig out. And I thought to myself, well, I don't think that's like doom and gloom. I think his days of being like clearly the best are probably over, but I don't think he's going to be like a DH next year or anything like that. And that, that's more or less what's happened, right? He's been solid average to pretty good as far as the metrics go this year, which I assume matches the eye test. And, um, you know, based on the way he started the year hitting, I think that's a pretty good player. Yeah, he's uh, he's solid. I mean, the bat hasn't really been there lately, but that's not something he's uh, he's alone in. And yesterday he doubled and hit a home run. So maybe better days ahead. Um, Mike, are there better days ahead for Vladimir Guerrero Jr.'s power? I, I know this is something that, you know, we can pull the mechanics thread and swing decisions thread. And obviously he remains, you know, a stat cast darling because he hits the ball hard, even if it's, even if it's to infielders. Um, are you, you know, at the national level kind of zoomed out a bit? Are you scratching your head as much as at Vlad's season as we are here in Toronto? I think you have to be, because if I had the answers to how to fix him, I wouldn't be talking to you because I'd be working for the Jays and not allowed to talk to anybody. But, you know, he always hits the ball hard. And what's happening this year is weird because, you know, when he first came up, it was, well, he hits the ball really hard, but he hits it into the ground and, you know, he's never going to get that power. And then he did for a year and then it seems like it's gone away. That's not what's happening this year. It's not about hitting it hard into the ground. It's about... When he gets these really high value batted balls, like, you, you know, you've heard the term barrels, right? It's a, supposed to be the most productive combination of exit velocity and launch angle. And when he does that, which he's doing not more than ever, but more than last year and more than most hitters in baseball, uh, he's just not getting anywhere with them. Like the, the distance on those balls is down. And I do think that does kind of go back to some mechanical things that you and I probably can't unlock because he's getting like dozens of feet uh, less than average, uh, not average, less than his average on these barrels. And I think Chris Black had a pretty good thread about this the other day that we were texting about a little bit. And the best I can come up with is he's just not getting the right spin on them. And maybe that's about where he's contacting the ball or how he's swinging it. But uh, batted ball spin can certainly have an impact on distance. And whatever he's doing, whether he's pressing, chasing, hitting the wrong kind of balls, I, I don't know. Um, it's It's frustrating there's not one great answer to this but I, I think the positive takeaway from here is you look under the hood his hard hit rate it's about exactly as it was in 2021 when he was having a fantastic year everything says this guy is going to be great and will be great and there's just like this one little thing that's not happening and i will take that over oh he just doesn't hit the ball hard anymore i think that skill is gone yeah i i think uh you can you can at least rely on on that that he's roping him and if he cleans up some of the other stuff uh maybe he, he'll be all right so you mentioned i, I want to whip around major league baseball a little bit with you mike and you mentioned you know kind of or, or chris had mentioned some of these hard hit balls that seem to just kind of die when they get to a fielder so they're hit really hard but then the spin rate drops off which is not something we we measure off the bat but maybe we will eventually um someone who doesn't hit for a ton of power but has made a living and maybe a, an historic year off of that this year is Luisa rise who you know not only leads the league in batting average he has the highest line drive rate which makes sense line drives generally give you the the highest batting average on balls in play and tongue in cheek here a little bit because there's been the kind of old school versus new school discussions around Luis Arise. He's also like a guy that from a stat cast perspective and a, what we can learn about batted ball and how to hit well, like he's a really good case study for the new school, not just the old school, right? 
Yeah, it's funny. People, uh, the, maybe the older school type of fan kind of uses him as a tool to be derisive about new metrics saying, well, he's got a great batting average and like a third percentile hard hit rate. And that means, you know, StatCast thinks he stinks. <laughs> and I'm over here saying uh, he's got an OPS of like 940. No, he's, <laughs> he's incredibly good. He might be the new Tony win. Does he hit the ball hard? No. Um, although it will forever be funny to me that he hit two home runs and one WBC game and might not hit two home runs this entire season. I guess he's got two now. And what he does, you know, people use the term launch angle so derisively. Like it's, oh, these powerful guys are trying to hit the ball straight up. And it's kind of funny because that's entirely what is making him great, aside from not striking out, is he's hitting the ball in this very consistent, narrow launch angle. And it's not like a home run angle, right? But it's not a ground ball angle. It's the like perfect kind of angles that get the ball just over the infielders, but not so far that the outfielders are going to be able to catch it. It's for him. It's not about the elimination of the shift because he was never shifted really. Anyway, he shifted 2% of the time last year. I don't actually think this is his new normal. Like I, people are killing the twins. You had a guy who hit 400 and you traded him away. That's like, yeah, but you know, hit 316 the year before and, and 294 the year before that, like he's always made a lot of contact, but he is not suddenly Ted Williams. He might be Tony Gwynn. I don't think he's going to hit 400 this year, but I do think we're seeing a guy as as close to Tony Gwynn as we've had in decades. Yeah. It's funny to look at his, you know, spray chart or spray heat map. And it's just, it's all so red, just out of reach of the fielders. <laughs> it's uh, it's pretty great. And, and for anyone who doesn't know, you know, um, a stack cast will look at the quality of contact and what kind of batted balls you're hitting and, and grade you with an expected batting average, right. Of like, okay, well you don't strike out a ton, you know, here's how many balls you put in play. Here's what we'd expect to happen roughly. And guess who's at the top of the league. It's Luis Arise. It's not, uh, it's just, maybe it doesn't think he can hit 400 because nobody has hit 400 uh, in a million years. So Luis arise analytics. Good. But Mike, New York Mets analytics suck. <laughs> I, think, I think I'd go a little deeper than that. They um, there's a lot of reasons they're not good. I, I don't think I would say it's because of the nerd stuff. I think yeah. it's because they've got two older starting pitchers who are not performing well and their highly paid shortstop in Lindor is not performing well. And Pete Alonso has been hurt. And did you know Buck Showalter's never won, uh, never made it to a World Series? I always find that interesting. Like, huh. I don't want to disrespect him at all. He's accomplished a lot. Um, but people act like he's, I don't know, Casey Stengel. He's never been to a World Series in all the years of managing. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's anyway, this is, um, I was teeing this up for anyone who didn't catch it. Um, you know, New York sports radio, that analytics suck and, and the Mets are doomed unless bug Buck Walter can manage his way. Mike, he's also a fascinating one for me because a couple years ago at beyond the box score, I did a study of like, is there any stickiness to your ability to win one run games, um, both at the team level and at the manager level. And he was at that point the only guy who like in the entire sample who showed, yes, he's good year over year. And then as soon as I wrote that article, his teams just completely fell apart in one run games for like a multiple year stretch. So uh, he is weirdly a friend and enemy of analytics, uh, depending on the timing. I wanted to ask you, um, about the Cincinnati Reds as well. Not, not, not even analytically. We don't have to do a stat side of this. This is just an incredibly fun baseball story. 11 games in a row, the longest winning streak the Reds have had since 1957. Joey Votto is back and a part of it, which is a blast as well. How much fun are you having watching the Cincinnati Reds team and following what's happening in Cincinnati right now? How could you not have fun? 
because not only is it like an underdog team that's you know surprisingly performing well there's some incredibly interesting guys obviously i think everybody knows ellie de la cruz <laughs> Uh, at this point, and I remember thinking about this uh, a couple weeks ago after De La Cruz made his debut and Joey Votto was still rehabbing his injury in the minors and it wasn't quite clear when or if Votto would make it back. And I remember saying, I really want him to make it back because in you know 2047 or whatever, when we are considering whether Ellie De La Cruz should be a Hall of Famer, I want to look back and say, and he played with Joey Votto. Joey Votto <laughs> and Ellie De La Cruz were on the same infield, even if only like very briefly, because you know there's like a 20 year age gap or whatever, and it and it happened, and like that makes it extra fun. Who does not love Joey Gal- uh, Joey Votto? Obviously, Ellie De La Cruz. The thing about the Reds, which is kind of funny to me, is they're uh, succeeding in maybe the exact opposite way I would have predicted. Because when you went into the season and you looked at them, you said, "Well, I don't know about this offense. This offense is kind of weak." But man, they've got three. Interesting starting pitchers who I think could all be very good in Hunter Green, uh, Nick Lodolo, and I'm already forgetting the third guy because he got hurt. And it, it really has not happened that way. Like, you know, Nick Lodolo was terrible and he got hurt and uh, Hunter Green's injured right now. Oh, Graham Ashcraft was the mm-hmm. third guy who had like a seven ERA and now he's hurt too. And it's like, if you had told me before the season that all three of those guys would be injured at the same time as they are now. And two of them would have an ERA over six. I would have said, well, this team's going to lose 172 games this year. <laughs> and boy, that hasn't happened. It makes me wonder if it's sustainable. Um, but if you look at the bullpen, Alexis Diaz, who is Edwin's brother, has been phenomenal, like almost as good as Edwin was last year, which I don't think anybody saw coming. So is this sustainable? I don't know. Does it have to be in the NL Central? Maybe not. Like they could win the division this year. And wouldn't that be the coolest story? It would be. It would be uh, amazing. And that's, I mean, that team is so fun. And and yeah, you talk about sustainable. Well, Luke Maley's hitting at a league average level right now. So I don't know. Uh, I don't know if every little piece of it uh, is sustainable, but that team's so likable. Maley, Votto, Ellie De La Cruz, um, you know, Will Benson's a ton of fun. So I, I hope they keep that rolling. Um, Mike, thanks so much for taking the time out this morning, man. I uh, really appreciate it and hope you have a, a very good couple weekends ahead, including that July 4th game with your son. That'll be a blast. Oh, yeah. Fourth of July, taking them to Yankees Orioles here in the city. That should be a lot of fun. Thanks a lot, Blake. Oh, at least it's not in Baltimore, so you can actually see home runs to left field. <laughs> okay, that that is another 15-minute topic. Never try to hit a ball out in left field in Baltimore, <laughs> so, unless you're Bo Bichette, who you know, kind of does that a lot. Yeah. All right. Mike Petriello, MLB.com. Uh, thanks, Ben. Um, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to we're going to keep it Blue Jays for a little bit, but we might we might sprinkle in a, a little bit of Raptors stuff because it is the NBA draft today. Um, we're going to talk to uh, Samson Folk of Raptors Republic, who's also a huge baseball fan. Uh, and yeah, we watch some ball together. And, and um, uh, heads up that the schedule is a little different on 590 today because of said draft. So uh, when we're done here, the Jeff Merrick show, as you're used to, but Will Lou with the Raptors show back today at two o'clock. That'll be true tomorrow uh, as well. And obviously setting up the draft tonight, breaking down what happens in the draft tomorrow. Uh, so if you've been, I mean, the Raptors show still has still existed in on the podcast side, but if you've been itching for it here on 590, you want more Raptors uh, draft stuff. You've got that to look forward to today and tomorrow as well. We're going to take a break. When we come back, Jay's, and a little bit of Raptors with Samson Folk as JSTOC Plus continues on Sports at 590 The Fan and Sports at 360. The most opinionated Maple Leaf show out there. Real Kipper and Born. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. It's NBA draft night. This is a Jay's show. But I'd imagine one of the biggest decisions you have to make as someone good enough at basketball to be relevant to the NBA draft. What do you wear? The draft night fit is something that's going to stick with you for a very long time. If you are certain draft classes from the early 2000s, it might stick with your entire draft class as the big baggy suit year or something like that. Samson Folk of Raptors Republic, he will get a fit pick off if he's going to get an iced coffee. Samson, what would you like? How how meticulously would you be planning out the draft night fit if you were draft eligible? I big time. It would be a super big deal. I would be like a league fits guy. Darius Garland had a Jedi adjacent outfit, I think a couple years ago. That was pretty great. Yeah, I would think about it a lot. Fashion is cool. I love that. It is. We don't get it quite as much on uh, the baseball side. And the MLB draft is, you know, compared to certainly to basketball and football and even the NHL, uh, not as big a deal. It's coming up here pretty soon, and we're going to have a cool thing, it sounds like, where two guys from LSU will go 1-2 in the draft. We we don't have that going on on the NBA draft side. Um, What is going on on the NBA draft side, though, Samson? Before we talk, Jays, how are you feeling heading into uh, a night where the Raptors have the number 13 pick, and the direction is still kind of nebulous we we don't really know uh what the the raptors intentions are here not just on draft night but also uh with the free agency ahead how you feeling i feel pretty good i think that you know hope springs eternal (laughs) especially around the draft and a lot of people more more so like you you were a guy who was big into going to vegas and then going to all the draft workouts when you were covering the raptors more intensely but a lot more people are kind of into that now into the draft cycle and it's a large part of some people's fandom of the NBA is getting excited for that. So that's cool. As far as the Raptors um, media, we talked to Dan Tolzman the other day at the OVO Center. He said there was quite a bit of consideration for moving up in the draft. Uh, A guy like Scoot Henderson, that's pretty exciting. Um, I've talked about Kobe Bufkin, Grady Dick quite a bit as far as covering the draft. And both those guys, uh, per sources, have both had multiple workouts with the Raptors. So that's interesting. Uh, there's a lot of good players in their range, and I think a lot of people consider the middle of the first round to have like a, a really high quality and depth of talent. So, uh, yeah, hope springs eternal. I'll hit that hit that drum again. Absolutely, and congrats on what I think is your first per sources that you've dropped on on the radio at least. Uh, I know you you had it on the on the pod over at Raptors Republic as well. Um, last one for you on the draft before we talk baseball. But you guys at Raptors Republic, and, and we did this back when I was at Raptors Republic as well. Uh, a little NBA draft watch along tonight. What that what's that going to be like? Where can people check it out? Yeah, I think it'll be, it's three Brewers, Young and Dundas. Uh, I think it'll be a blast. Uh, I'll be there to do a live podcast for part of that. And if anybody wants to come talk about, I guess, the Raptors on, I don't know, a, a somewhat prominent podcast, a lot of people <laughs> listen to it. If, if you want to get your takes off, you can come talk to me about uh, basketball. And if you just want to talk to me about basketball, that's cool too. And whoever else is there, it's a good way to kind of foster community. Uh, So, yeah, that's where it is. Uh, Thanks for the plug. (laughs) I have declined the invite to the Raptors Republic draft green room. Uh, However, if they trade up and get scoot, I might sprint. That's only like one subway stop from me. So I might I might hustle down there and uh, and meet you guys if it's if it's the dawning of the Scott and scoot era, as it were. Um, Okay, so I know that. 
you being heavy on the draft stuff, it's necessitated by the Raptors having not been very good this year and they, them having a high pick. It's also something you've ramped up a little bit over the last couple of years on the professional side, but you're a huge baseball fan as well. Does that carry over into the baseball side for you? Like, are you, are you a prospects guy? Are you a guy who's curious about um, that kind of stuff at the baseball level? Or is it just too kind of far away and deep on the baseball side for you? It's too big. Like I, I have no idea. I hear about the cool prospects when you talk about them or, <laughs> you know, I, that's, that's basically it, right? Like the, the show is my source and, and Blue Jays talk in general is my source for a lot of the Blue Jays stuff, but that's right. I can't go deep on the, you know, the Blue Jays was there like 40 rounds in the draft. Are you kidding me? Not no anymore. They've, they've shortened that up and they've like, they've now restricted. You can only have um, like six G league teams instead of, uh, right. instead of infinite. It was the old, uh, the old branch Ricky strategy and the Yankee strategy for a long time of like, what if we just had all the minor league teams? So we had all the minor league players and nobody else could, could get them and, and develop them. Um, okay. So you're, you're a baseball fan. i mostly at, at the MLB level and which is obviously fine. Not everyone has to be casual. Yeah. Sure. Well, not, not derisively. Like not everyone has yeah. to know what Chad Dallas did for the New Hampshire Fisher cats last night. Um, but I do know that, you know, you're a pretty big baseball fan. Where do you find the the differences? And I've talked to Eric Green about this a little bit before too. Like he gets more intense about baseball fandom than he does about basketball because basketball is a work thing and baseball is kind of a fandom thing. Do you find that similar for yourself or, or does that like level head that you have to have for basketball translate to your baseball fandom as well? I think it's the the Dunning Kruger effect except <laughs> for like emotionality, right? I know a lot about basketball, so I could couch no matter how crazy it is. It's like Tyrese Halliburton way back when, when he was like, no, I like that shot that he took it's like you could couch any basketball situation if you have all the knowledge and you can be like okay this outcome is fine this attempt is fine but baseball I played a decent level of baseball but as far as keeping up with all the analytics of it the new wave of how it's played and all the different players I'm way behind the curve so uh I just get a little bit emotional sure like when (laughs) flatty grounds into a double play that is way like I probably get more emotional about that than when Pascal missed those two free throws in the playing <laughs> game. Honestly, I don't know. We watched that game together. Yeah. I wasn't like I was like, ah, oh, damn. But Vladdy double play. I'm like, come on, man. What are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. And I think I think that's reasonable. Right. One is kind of more work and one is more more fandom. There's also I'm curious specifically, you, you mentioned the, the Pascal missed free throws. But one of the areas that, you know, doing them both as a job, I kind of like I I see the parallels um, between them, but like dealing with three point variants in the NBA. Now three pointers normalize a lot more than say runners with hitting with runners in scoring position. Are you able to lean on a little bit of like, Oh, well things will even out or is it like baseball's 162 games. It's we're like 80 games in here and the Jays still aren't hitting with runners in scoring position. How does that play out for you? The knowledge of what variance is and how it works, but Hey, day to day, I I don't want to hear about that. It's a make or miss league. Yeah, I think that it is important. And mind you, I do get more emotional for baseball, but I'm not typically a very emotional fan. I do wait, you know, kind of sit on my hands for the paint it black segment. I do think, you know, I don't listen to much radio, but that's my favorite segment I've ever listened to on a, you know, a, a like sports podcast, wherever you guys do such a good job. I really like hearing you guys dive into what makes X and Y happen and kind of get into the the more specific stuff like launch angle and 
uh, I guess, like exit velocity and stuff like that. So um, I on a thing that's a big deal in the Blue Jays, I'll wait till you and Chris kind of hmm. do a deep dive on it. Like Alec Manoa, I learn a ton, stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the Manoa part of this season has been a little on the frustrating side and perplexing. You you mentioned the Vlad stuff on the positive side, though. I know you've always been a big Danny Jansen guy. Uh, how excited have you been with, with his not only return from injury, but kind of getting right back to, to sticking? That's who he is. He's a winner. <laughs> He's a bat first catcher. He has been his whole life. There's a guy. Does he wear did he does he still wear batting gloves right now or did he switch back to no gloves? I, I don't think he wears batting gloves right now. Okay, he had a stretch where he hit like two home runs with them on, and I was like, I don't know, is he losing himself? Is <laughs> you know, is he losing the no no batting gloves ethos and all that kind of stuff? But he's great, man. I think I don't know enough about the game to like on the broadcast you'll hear it on some of the radio stuff you'll hear it about calling the game and and framing and stuff like that. And he's you know heralded as a very good game caller and great for the pitchers. I can't act you know. I can't analyze the game at that level, but guy hit ball far. <laughs> Oof, I'm in there, dude. And he, he's, he's that too. Uh, what else has been, uh, you know, a positive for you when, when you're down at games this year or, or checking out games, who, who else has stood out to you or what's been uh, one of the things you're having the most fun with this year? Okay. Actually, let me say this. I have a gripe. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I know. We can go the, Sports. I was trying to be positive. We can go the gripe direction as well. That's, that's equally welcome. Okay. So, the the stadium it was great i sat by the the opposing bullpen the one game uh i'm sat down the third baseline the other game but i'll say this much the jumbotron the board or whatever it's pretty static you got to put it, some replays on there there's like nothing going on it's like pictures only ever pictures that's my only that's my only thing as far as going to the games having a good time uh they're one and one at the games i've been at this year uh alejandro kirk we saw his home run that was great but i I think that um as far as my favorite thing this year is probably the brandon belt i'm the mvp stuff (laughs) it's a really good bit and i also kind of follow baseball on twitter as well and i see other fan bases respond to it like it's not a bit which makes the bit it elevates the bit further and i think that he's been a great addition uh kevin kiermeyer is extremely handsome and extremely good (laughs) at baseball that's always good and I still believe in, I guess, Bo Bichette is awesome. I like all the guys. I mean, and when they struggle, it makes you sad. But I, I don't have distaste for any players. They're, they're great. So now that you mentioned, you, you mentioned Kevin Kiermaier's handsomeness, I, I'm going to spin this a little bit and go back to Danny Jansen. Um, you are a bald man. Where do you land on Kevin <laughs> Gosman calling Danny Jansen bald, even though Danny Jansen is a head shave guy? So I'm going to follow the the Larry David line that he drew in the sand is, you know, you got it. That stuff has to be receding. If you're like, you're stealing bald valor. I think Danny, <laughs> and I like Danny. I like Danny, but if I met him, I'd have to tell him you're stealing bald valor. Like if you have the hair, you should grow it out. I know he's, you know, tough guy behind the plate, grinds it out. He, you know, he's shaves it. But I think uh, George Springer, he's the guy come home, George. Like that's, that's what we're waiting for. Yeah. I think you're, you're pretty accurate there. Although Jose Batista never really let go. He just kind of, uh, he just kind of hung on. This is not a, this is not a blue Jays question, but are you, have you watched the new always sunny in Philadelphia episodes? 
Not yet. Okay. I'm still uh, still behind. Well, never mind, because there is. Uh, I was going to go a Chase Utley direction, uh, who, by the way, uh, just got now uh, announced as uh, as an ambassador, uh, Major League Bas- Baseball's ambassador to Europe officially. Uh, Ken Rosenthal had a write up on it on the Athletic today. Um, so I was going to kick around some Chase Utley stuff with you, but if you're not caught up, I don't want to spoil anything for you. Get on top of it. Wait, wait, what are you doing? Prepping for a draft or something? Yeah. Can I ask you a question? Yeah, of course. What's- What's the biggest outside of, I guess, North and South America? Where's baseball the biggest? Um, that's an interesting question. So or I guess like, there's Japan. And, sorry, but like yeah. in, in Europe, I should say. Yeah, I mean, there's so Japan and then obviously um, there's a little bit in Australia, Korea. It's pretty big. I would say like like. I, they, it's played in Italy and Great Britain had a, has teams and stuff like that. But the Netherlands is what I want to answer for that one. Um, like honkball is uh, is like a thing there. And the other thing baseball is trying to do right now, and I'm going to talk with Vivek about this tomorrow, actually, because he's coming on to, to tee up Cricket Day at the ballpark. But Cricket is trying to launch in North America right now, while baseball is starting is trying to start the first professional league uh, in South Asia. So it's kind of, you know, an interesting time where baseball generally hasn't done a a great job globalizing uh, outside of a few pockets. But yeah, I I think the Netherlands is probably the place that at least relative to population has like the most outsized baseball impact. Play in the V Vivek, his, his sub stack. Fantastic. I've learned more about cricket um, reading that than I have in my entire life. Even if I'm not reading everything, it's, um, it's great. I, yeah, that's cool. Baseball has been kind of on a wave, at least from my perspective. Well, the, the Shohei strikeout on Trout seemed like a, a moment, a seminal moment in the, I guess, modern era of baseball. And finally leaning into like being star driven and letting guys have fun and trying to promote your young guys and things like that. Um, by the way, speaking of baseball's kind of globalization, uh, they're playing a pair of games in London this week. Uh, a friend of mine who works for MLB on the social media side flew out to London uh, ahead of games Thursday and Friday. Uh, the Cubs and Cardinals are going to play in London, and I believe they've already announced games for next year as well. So maybe London uh, is next up here, Samson. Can I ask you a question? You you don't have to ask. You could just You could just ask. You just go right ahead. What's, you know, I'm sure everybody, they want to hear the quick rundown. Vladdy Guerrero Jr., what's the, I know you do concern indexes. I know you do optimism indexes, all that kind of yeah. stuff. But uh, Lots of la- indices. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, what's the launch angle? Is that it, do you think? Just like, hey, get under it a little bit more. Could it, is it that simple? No. Or what, what are we dealing with? It's not that simple because I, I've dug into the numbers and like, first of all, his, his launch angle is better this year than it has been in, in prior years, certainly compared to last year. It's been a part of his struggles recently. Like his ground ball rate has, has gone up since that knee injury in early May. Um, but it's not just that. Like, so we can, we can go a little past launch angle now and, and um, baseball prospectus, a guy named Robert Orr there has a stat that kind of looks said, okay, the launch angle is the angle of height you hit it at, exit velocity is how hard, and then he adds a component that we can't easily search on Baseball Savant, but he can calculate it, um, and that's which direction you hit the ball. So not just pull center oppo, but you know, cut that into 90 degrees instead of just three buckets. Um, and what those things combine to create is damage rate. 
how often would you expect the ball to do damage? And that's one where like Matt Chapman was like lapping the league in April and has fallen off. And that's one with Vlad. Um, he's down significantly since the start of it's from something like 34% of his batted balls were, would have been expected to do damage down to like 22%. Um, so it's not just launch angle, but it's how launch angle plays with where you hit it and how hard you hit it and things like that. Um, I think with him, I don't know. My my concern that he's this version forever is pretty low, but I do there is like a bit of concern creeping in that he now has like one really good season and four like pretty good seasons and that's uh you know, the larger sample there says Vlad's just really good and not generational. That's where I think at this point a, a little bit of the concern is creeping in. Does that make sense? Yeah, do you uh do you talk to somebody who's looking at the swing mechanics or are you waiting for like Mark DeRosa to grab the bat on MLB TV and like walk you through it? Do, I mean, you, do you know anything that's happening there? When I run into Joe Siddle or Caleb Joseph, I'll, I'll ask them about it a little bit. Like I I don't know that there's anyone better at that stuff than Joe Siddle and Caleb's been doing a great job on Blue Jay Central, but I don't get to uh I don't get to talk to those guys a ton. And then you you can get into as well like you know, there's um you know, you start pulling at threads a little bit and it's like, okay, well the mechanical thing is real and the speed of the hands through the zone. Now, is that a thing on its own or is that happening because he's swinging at pitches he shouldn't be swinging at and things like that. And then there's also something that keeps standing out to me that, that an analytics person mentioned to me is like Ronald Acuna jr. Last year, after a minor knee injury dealt with a whole bunch of the stuff that Vlad is going through and like said, after the fact that, yeah, it was kind of like a knee thing, and I was I was compensating for that. And um, obviously, Ronald Acuna Jr. is having a, a monster year again this year. I'm not saying that Vlad is going to be Ronald Acuna He's next fixed. year, but yeah, there is maybe a, a component of. He, he's been trying to play through having his knee banged up and that, that affects things as well. Um, but yeah, that's a, I mean, Joe Siddle's so good on, on the, the television broadcast and Caleb's so good on Blue Jay Central. Uh, I kind of leave the, the mechanics stuff to those guys a little bit more. Hell yeah. Um, that's, okay. that's very informative. Thank you. Yeah. So we've got, we've got about two and a half minutes left here. So let's kick it back to the draft. You mentioned a couple guys um, that you like in the Raptors draft range. Obviously Scoot is a guy that if a trade materializes where you can move into the two, three range, uh, that changes our discussion a lot. Um, but at 13, give us like the elevator pitch for, I don't know, maybe your two favorite guys who could be there. Okay. So Kobe Bufkin has extremely unique movement skills. He's very shaky. He's very shifty. And he is an elite finisher at the rim um, per college, like between 67, 70%. Um, really good college guards you, you're sitting around usually like 62, 63. So outlier, very impressive. He is a guy who can run quite a few actions on ball. His shooting indicators, while not on super high volume, started really to trend upwards. And he's also really, really pesky or pesky at the point of attack. Brady Dick is fantastic as a connective passer. He makes, you know, if like baseball fans, if you've only seen a few, I guess, Raptors games, the guy who always makes the pass that you're like, wow, that's a good pass. That created a good shot. He does that a lot. And a lot of it comes while he's in motion, while trying to make the defense respond to him as a shooter. He's also probably one of the best three shooters in the draft. He's six foot eight. He's pretty big. That makes him a lot easier to make work defensively. And both those guys have a lot of the, um, at least it's been reported that they have a bunch of the intangibles. They're super likable young men. Um, most guys in the draft are. I, it'd be <laughs> weird to hear 
somebody say otherwise for young men like that. But regardless, they seem like good guys. They're very talented ball players, and uh, I don't know if either of them will make it to thirteen. But I would be overjoyed if either one of them did. Well, there we go. Uh, and people can check out your reaction to that at the Raptors Republic draft event or at Raptors Republic. Uh, you'll be breaking it down with the, the videos in the podcast and some writing after the fact. Samson, folk, thanks for taking the time out on a busy day and uh, enjoy tonight, buddy. Hell yeah, brother. Take care. <laughs> Samson, folk of Raptors Republic, uh, Jay's fan, but I had to I had to squeeze in a little bit of Raptors stuff on draft day. If you want more Raptors stuff on draft day, the Raptor show is back today and tomorrow in the 2 to 3 p.m. slot with William Liu uh, and Alex Wong. So you can check that out as well. Uh, Jeff Merrick show comes next. You've got Ben Ennis and Blair and Barker. Come back to kind of a, a normal. Oh, there's also Smith and Jones at 7 o'clock today uh, to lead you right into the draft. So um, more basketball on the station than there's been the, the last little bit, as you'd expect, because it's draft day. Uh, really looking forward to it. So check out Will. Check out Smith and Jones. Uh, Jays Talk Plus will be back tomorrow at 10 a.m. And we will talk mostly Blue Jays as we set up the Oakland A's series. But apologies in advance. We'll probably talk, I don't know, at least five, 10 minutes of Raptor stuff too as I get my Raptors takes out. Um, and yeah, get some good guests tomorrow to tee up that A's series and fill us in a little bit more uh, about Cricket Day. Jays Talk Plus back tomorrow on Sports at 590 and Sports at 360.